Welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Women have been fighting for a long time for equality in the workforce. Something that is publicly talked about and advocated for, it's a current movement in today's society, gender equality. But what about the not-so-public life? What about life at home? For many women, there is nothing as maddening as coming home from work and realizing that there is the second shift. There is an incredible amount of work that disproportionately falls to the shoulders of women. For women around the country, the domestic labor of the home, including the children, all of the maintenance, all of the invisible labor, the mental load, the emotional labor, the organizational labor, the logistical work, well, it is enough to burn out even the most supported of people. This is one of the conflicts that drives people to divorce, that drives people to politics, and creates a lot of the underlying rage of motherhood. For all the dads out there and the non-binary parents, I'm going to be talking using the words motherhood because the majority of people that experience this are the moms. But I know how many dads are out there who are experiencing something so similar. I know how many equal partners there are, and I know how many dads nowadays are being buried by the domestic load. The domestic load is a real problem, and it's beyond just gender. It's beyond gender because it's an economic problem. It's a problem of not valuing the work of the home at all. A couple years ago, I had Darcy Lockman on the show to talk about the rage of motherhood, the rage of parenting. Darcy Lockman is the author of a book called All the Rage, Men, Women, and the Myth of Equal Partnership. Lockman is a former journalist turned clinical psychologist, and her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Psychology Today, Rolling Stone, and others. She is based with her husband and children in Queens. I think if there's anything to take away from this episode, the most important thing is this idea of equal partnership is so, so slippery. So many people go into the idea of an equal partnership to career couples and say, you know, we're going to have a family and we're going to be equal partners. But for the majority of people, it rarely plays out that way. And there are invisible forces at work that make this really challenging. In addition, everybody's workload increases when you have a child. You get a new child and all of a sudden everyone's doing what feels like 10 times as much work. So it's really hard to have this conversation because people aren't not working. But unfortunately, it's not proportional. And on average, men take on about 35% of the household duties in the best case scenario. But women are shouldered with the other 65%, and often it's 65, 75, 85, sometimes 90%. That's one of the reasons why mothers in particular are so overwhelmed. That is the topic of today's conversation. I'm so grateful to have Darcy join us on the show. Let's dig in. Darcy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start with one of my favorite questions, which is what time did you wake up this morning and what was the first thing that you did? Ah, okay. I was able to sleep till 6.45 technically today, but my husband gets up at six and then the dog starts jumping all over our bed. So I was up kind of lying there and then my six-year-old crawled into bed with me. So the first thing I did was cuddle her. And then what happens? Do you hang out in bed for a while? Do you get coffee? Do you drink water? until my alarm went off at 6.45. And then I got up much to her disappointment because she was not ready. And I fed the dog. And the dog had luckily peed on the wee-wee pad in our room. So I didn't have to take her out right away. If she doesn't do that, I have to take her out right away. So then I 
tried to get my six-year-old to stop crying. She cries a lot in the mornings because she doesn't want to go to school. And we have a play date tonight that she doesn't want to go on. So she was crying that I needed to cancel it. So the morning was like kind of trying to calm her down, get both kids to shower and make them breakfast because they were supposed to shower last night and it didn't happen. And, you know, so that, that was kind of the shape of my morning. Crying six-year-old, two kids to get in the shower who don't want to shower because, of course, they hate that for some reason. And then I walked them to school with the dog in the rain. <laughs> oh, and then the dog got off her leash and ran into the school. It was like a comic book morning. Because <laughs> it was raining and they like they don't really let the kids in, but there was an open door and the dog dashed in. <laughs> like, she's a puppy and her leash is just, the, the harness is just a tad too big. So sometimes she slips out of it. So I like drop the umbrellas that I'm standing outside with, with the kids, run into the school because I know that they're they're gonna like not be happy with me that the dog has like run into the school so but I captured her and put her back on her harness and then came home to talk to you oh my god amazing and people listening the recording started at eight fifteen in the morning so we both managed to get children out the door through the rain that's amazing I actually that reminds me I have like a funny side story about that the wee wee pad so you know how there's like a uh, tax on all things women, like the products are just more expensive. I uh, someone told me that you instead of buying those like diaper change pad liners for babies, because there's also a tax on babies, you can just buy the dog pads. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're also That's- urine protectors, which I find hysterical and fascinating. So I just for people the listening, dog, the dog ones are less expensive. That's what I've heard. That's so funny. And they're I- bigger, they actually fit the dang like changing table. I never used them on the changing table, so I don't know. But now we rely on them because we have a puppy. Yeah, totally. So how old are your kids? Six and nine. Six First and, and four. Yeah. What's that like? It's great. We're in this sweet spot where they can dress themselves and get themselves a bowl of cereal and work their iPads. They're just like, you know, you go from this phase where they're so dependent on you for everything every step they take and it's so draining and then suddenly you have two kids who are doing all this stuff for themselves and it's it's there's so much freedom in it and they're also still they really adore you mostly and so it's like this I feel like it's this place between complete dependency and adolescence that's just really really nice so I'm I'm really enjoying it it's so much easier than it was when I started out writing this book right because you started writing this book I imagine many a couple years ago Well, I started, so I started the proposal like four years ago. I worked really slowly on the book proposal, which, you know, for nonfiction books, you often write a proposal and sell the proposal rather than writing the whole book first. So I started writing the proposal probably at the very end of 2015, but I had really mixed feelings about doing it because my husband and I were in a much better place about this stuff. And I thought, do I really want to dig back in? So, you know, he was on board but I, I still just worked really slowly. I had like one afternoon a week to work on it because I'm a um, psychologist. I'm a therapist in private practice. That's how I mostly earn my living. So anyway, so Tess, my youngest, was uh, was three when I started working on it, and now she's six. So we're just in a different place in terms of what the kids need. But those were like the grueling years, you know, from the time my second daughter was born. Those years between like when I had a baby and a three-year-old and then like a three-year-old and a six-year-old. I think that's when it got easier was when I had a three-year-old and a six-year-old. And that's when I started writing. That makes so much sense. That makes so much sense. Okay. So you have that sweet spot to look forward to. 
I, I can't wait. So I want to take us back in time for a little bit. Like I want to go back because you have such an interesting backstory and career path. You started a career from what I've gleaned, you know, through internet research in magazine journalism. And then you switched and started an entirely new career as a psychologist and a therapist. Can you tell us, can you like go back and talk to us about why you started one career and then what it was like to switch? Yeah. So I always loved to write. And I, I was like on my high school newspaper. I was like, you know, like, like so many people who wind up in magazine publishing, I was editor in chief of my high school newspaper and I worked at that paper in college and I loved it. And I had no interest in being a therapist, which my, which my mom is and was, I didn't take any psych classes in undergrad. And I moved to New York City after I graduated from Michigan to work in magazines, because that's where magazines are. And I did that. I worked all over. I worked at Us and Seventeen and Vogue. I was on staff there. And then I was a freelance writer for kind of like everybody. And it was a really good time to be in magazines. It was sort of the last gasp of like huge money in publishing. And there were always parties. And it, it was just, it was very fun. And I wrote a lot, but a lot of the writing I was doing wasn't that rewarding. When you have to make a living that way, you have to take a lot of assignments that you don't love and that aren't that interesting. So when I, as I got like towards my, towards the later part of my twenties, I kind of thought, I don't, I don't think I can do this, you know, when I'm 40. And when I would look around me in magazines, no one was over 40. I was, where do all these people go? And at the same time, I had started seeing a therapist myself when I was 22, which was the best decision I ever made. And I I found like the way she understood human nature and human beings to be so interesting. I, I think at 22, most people don't have a good hold of their psychology and like know that it's, there's like a, it's kind of systematic and consistent. So in addition to getting a lot out of therapy, I just found it fascinating. And I thought maybe that, maybe I'll do that. And you know, my mom was a therapist. So I guess there was sort of a, I don't know, a a pull towards that maybe in some way. So I went, I didn't have any of the prereqs. So I went back and did my master's at 28 and then started my doctoral program at 30. Um, And I kept writing and working at magazines. I actually, I worked at Vogue during the summers during grad school and I would like leave at lunch to go see my patients in the clinic we had downtown. So it was was kind of a fun mix of things. Um, But I was, you know, so I ended up ultimately obviously leaving publishing when I finished my doctorate and um, had other jobs and now I'm in private practice. And you, you have a whole story from what I can tell about like the rigor of working in some of the kind of more difficult institutions in New York. I did my clinical internship, which is the fifth year of grad school at Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn. And I wrote a book about it, um, which maybe you saw. It's called Brooklyn Zoo. So I wrote about the year I spent working on, on the psych ward. And those, those environments are always really difficult, but there were the challenges in the neighborhood that I was working in was that it was just really, you know, like a socioeconomically not a, not a neighborhood that was doing well and people who had a lot of challenges outside of mental health problems that, that everybody has and, and might have. So it was a really good learning experience. I really enjoyed it. And I also enjoyed writing a book about it. So, and you wrote that book from what I can gather before you had children. Actually, I, I sold that proposal when my oldest was six months old. I still remember like I, you know, when you, when a proposal goes out, 
editors are interested in it and you take calls with them. And I had my six month old with me and I'm talking to this like super esteemed older editor who wants to buy my book and I'm just praying she stays asleep. Cause at the time I didn't think to say to him, Hey, my, my baby's here and she might cry. I don't know what I thought would happen if, if he knew that. But I remember like taking her out and being in a coffee shop thinking that would maybe like keep her, <laughs> keep her calmer. Um, so she was six months when I sold that. And I, uh, I started, I finished writing it. Well, I was pregnant with my second daughter by the time it was published. So it's always about two and a half years between selling a proposal and publication. Wow. Okay, wait. So then did that mean, like, can you talk about how the idea came to you to write this book? And does that mean it came to you when you were pregnant with your first? Well, the first book, so I, you know, because I had been a journalist, I went into psychology thinking I want to write about psychology for a popular audience. Part of the thing that felt unsatisfying when I was a magazine writer was that I was always like dipping my toe into some subject area and then moving on. And I thought, well, if I, in addition to wanting to be a therapist, I can also like, this is something I can really know about. If I have a PhD, I'm going to really know about this and I can really kind of delve into it in a more satisfying way. So I always planned to keep writing in some sort of a journalistic way. And then as internship year approached, I thought, oh, wouldn't I, you know, I, I was someone who always loved early career memoirs, like people writing about the early parts of their careers. I love hearing about what people do for a living. And that's a great way to do it is to read someone's book. So I had read a bunch of books like that. And I thought, oh, my internship year would make a really good book. So the year I was at Kings County, I spent the whole year taking copious notes. Every day when I left my internship, and even sometimes during the day, I would write down just everything that happened. So by the time internship ended, I had all the research was done. I hadn't written a proposal yet or certainly sold a book, but I had these notebooks full of like all the details from what had gone down. So then I, you know, I started writing that proposal I was working on it when my daughter was a newborn, actually, which was great because I was not never able to sleep while she slept and I would have gone out of my mind if I wasn't working on something. So I wrote that proposal. You know, I, again, I did the internship with, with a book in mind and then wrote the proposal after it ended. Wow. What was it like to write while you had a newborn? Like, was there any experience of feeling all the sleep deprivation or like your brain was in a different place? What was that experience like? Well, actually, now that I'm remembering, I met my literary agent, who is still my literary agent, Dan Conaway at Writer's House, who I love, um, when I was pregnant. I went to, he, I sent him the proposal and he liked it. A good friend of mine is a client of his. And so he read it and liked it. And I went to meet him. I remember because I had to climb the stairs at Writer's House. There's no elevator. I was like, I don't know, 37 weeks pregnant and climbing the stairs to his office. So actually the proposal, though he and I were, he, we were editing it when I had a newborn. It, was, it had already been written. So I think the editing part is always easier for me than the writing part. So I was, I was editing, I should correct myself, when, when I had a newborn. And yeah, I was totally sleep deprived, but also kind of wired, you know? And I was home. Like I had never, I only took eight weeks of maternity leave just because we needed me to be working. I mean, you know, you know how it is. You need the money. So I went back to work after eight weeks, but only very part-time. So it was, it was actually, it was just nice. I mean, those early months are so hard, but it was, I, I really liked having a project. It really helped get me through actually. Yeah. You mentioned the sweet spot of like children being, your children being six and nine. And I, because I'm right there in the middle of it, I think there's also that little tiny sweet spot of your child being like between three and six months. Like after they have consolidated for hopefully, and this is not true for everyone listening, um, but like consolidate a little bit of sleep. So you're getting like maybe a five or six hour chunk or a four hour chunk and you feel like, okay, I can function halfway. Thank the Lords. And before they start crawling. 
right? And they, the, my current child has not started crawling yet. And so I still call him a potted plant. <laughs> I can put him down and he stays. And so like, I have this little window where I've been hyper productive, but I also know what's coming <laughs> where like nine months and then they start walking and then you're like, oh boy, like all of your brain energy is devoted to just like constantly scanning the environment to make sure they don't hurt themselves. Oh, yeah, no, you're right. I was lucky because I was editing the proposal in that potted plant phase. Yes. <laughs> I sold the proposal. Um, I had a babysitter two days a week so I could write. So I was not writing the book while watching my baby. Like that would have been impossible. I just had, I had two full days a week where that was my only job was writing the book. The first oh, thanks. Thanks for saying that out loud because I think there's so much glossing over like, oh, and then I was home and I wrote the book with my baby. No, and people- abs- no absolutely. <laughs> that did not even nearly happen. That would have been impossible. And then my daughter started preschool. So we had a, um, she started preschool at like 10 months, but um, there was like, there was a good four months where we had a babysitter. I mean, yeah. And at that time I was home with her two days a week. I was writing two days a week and I would think I was practicing one day a week. Um, while my husband and then was my husband home? I don't remember exactly what happened, but we definitely had a babysitter before she started preschool. There was no working with the baby on either book for sure. So I want to ask you about this book. You have written your second book. You've written a book about that place that won't budge in terms of gender equity and parity, that area of the home life. Despite yep. making like lots of inroads or maybe let's call it some inroads and progress in the public sphere, the work arena, like that's where a lot of the conversation is happening. There is this place and it's the home life where we still have a long way to go. And that's where your work specifically is, your lens is pointed there. Can you tell us about why you decided to write this book and what you were seeing that prompted this conversation? Yes. So my husband and I are both progressive, egalitarian-minded people. We met in grad school. We never thought about having some sort of traditional division of labor where I stayed home. We had this vague assumption when we had kids that everything would be shared because that's just sort of how we were as people. And I found myself, as my first daughter got older, surprised at how much of managing her needs felt to me, whether that was remembering diapers or packing her bag for the week at preschool or knowing when there was a professional development day and we did backup childcare. My husband and I, I just watched us living very differently as parents. He's certainly very involved and loving, but not having any idea about any of those things. I was so surprised at how much of it just kind of defaulted to me without any discussion or conscious awareness. And I saw the women around me Uh, also full-time working women, living in the same way. And people would talk about their frustrations, of course. We'd um, air our grievances with each other, but never did a really good job somehow in our relationships of getting through with that. And I found myself, through the years of parenthood, the early years, asking the same question 20 times a day in my head. How is it that we're still living this way? This isn't what we expected, any of us, men or women, yet this is how it's always playing out. Why is it still this way? That question was on my mind so often. And finally, after a few years, and actually it was when our second daughter was born, that I really just felt like I couldn't handle it anymore. It was overwhelming, the amount of stuff there was to do. And it was so hard, again, to watch us living so differently, my husband and I, in our parenting roles. And I, I was really resentful. And I, I wanted to figure out why. And finally, I thought, well, I, I'm a journalist. I'm a psychologist. I can really dig into the research and try to answer what had become this super burning question for me. 
why is it still like this? Mm, I mean, it's, I think it's something that's so prevalent and it comes up in partnerships and I'm talking mostly about heterosexual partnerships here, like husband yeah, and- I am too. Cause what I, the book is about sexism in personal, basically in personal relationships. So I'm, I'm talking about how that plays out between a man and a woman. So yes, thank you for clarifying. Right. And listeners, the book title, and uh, you've heard me say this already, but the book title is all the rage mothers, fathers in the myth of equal partnership. So it looks at like the dynamic between mother, traditional mothers and fathers, although this can play out for different types of partnerships. Yeah. Well, well not traditional mothers and fathers because in traditional couples who make an explicit decision to live in a way where the wife is going to take care of most of the home. This is, it's less problematic. I mean, the wife along the way might change her mind about wanting this, but it's the couples that kind of assume that they're progressive and that their behavior will grow from their values where things end up defaulting to the mother that there's really trouble within the couple. Oh, yes. Thank you for clarifying that. Right. It's, it's for, because there are partnerships out there where people will say, the wife will say, well, I want to be a homemaker and yeah, a stay-at-home sure. wife. And this is, this is the kind of partnership that I want. And you're not talking about those necessarily. You're talking yeah, right, about- Right, right, right. Two okay. great couples where the assumption going into it was, of course, we're, of course, this is equal co-parenting. It's, you know, 2019. What else would we do? But it, it so rarely plays out that way. Yes. Okay. So most of the people listening to this podcast and most of the people that are part of the startup pregnant community are people who are entrepreneurs, business owners, leaders, working women, right? And they are, I've done a couple of surveys of the audience, but I should do another one, but they tend to be either just starting to think about having kids, newly pregnant, or in the first couple of years after having kids. And I think one of the things that comes up time and time again is that people go into having children saying, we're going to make it work. We're going to have equal partnerships. We're different. And they wake up with kids that are three to five years old and say, oh, what just happened? And can you unpack that a little bit? Like what is happening that takes the idea of equity and distorts it so far in that imbalance? Well, I think the first problem is, is that we don't expect it. There's this story that has been told in the last couple decades about the so-called modern involved father, right? He does school drop-off. He knows where their socks are. He's responsive to nightmares. So there has in, in our culture in the last, you know, half a century been a huge shift in how involved dads are with their kids. So what we have done is kind of mistaken father involvement with their children for equality and co-parenting. We kind of equate the two in our minds. And so because there's this great story of the modern involved father, a lot of us go into parenting with this assumption of kind of like, um, you know, about, about 50-50, everyone kind of knows what's going on. So the, the first part of the problem is that what we don't realize and what I didn't realize was that uh, time use studies from the Bureau of Labor Statistics actually show that the amount of, of childcare work that fathers do leveled off around the year 2000, way before it ever reached parity. So in two, in dual career couples, fathers do carry about 35 percent of the child care load. And this is from Bureau of Labor Statistics, again, time use studies, but there are tons of metrics that back it up. I was amazed when I started doing the research at how thorough um, sociologists have been in kind of quantifying and documenting all this. There's an amazing body of research, and a lot of it is in the book, uh, about, about moms and how much more they do. So because we carry this myth of the modern involved father, we don't go into parenting knowing that actually the work of child care never reached parity in West Western homes. 
women do most of the unpaid labor. Wow. So we have this, this false sense going into it that it's going to be fine. And then also, what's the perception for people once they're inside of it? Do, what do women feel? What do men feel? What did you find? Yeah. So the perception once inside of it is a lot of mothers are angry. And a father's participation in the care of his young child is actually the best predictor of how a woman feels about her marriage at that point. So this, this impacts women a lot. The research shows that fathers are often unaware of the problem, even when their wives bring it to their attention repeatedly, and that mothers' marital happiness and even depression is impacted by uh, the division of labor. A woman who feels the division of labor in her home around childcare is unjust is, I can't remember the numbers, but it is more likely to be depressed than a woman who reports that the division of labor is fair. Women who report that the division of labor is unjust are 45% less likely to say that their marriages are very happy. There's a ton of data on this, but it affects women much more than men because men don't seem to register the problem. So, um, so anyway, there are, there are huge consequences for marriage that are, that are well documented and that research is in the book. And then you mentioned, I believe that, that women are the initiators of divorce. You know, this unhappiness yeah. leads to... So, well, seven, right. Women initiate 70% of divorce. And I, I don't know why that is. I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people who speculate on why that is, but that, that happens to be true. And I actually, I wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post a couple of years ago when I, when I had started working on the book about, you know, men, men, the need for men to step up in the home and do more of the unpaid labor. And I actually got a lot of emails from women who said, you know, that they, they, this is why their marriage ended. Uh, they couldn't take it anymore. So that, that was interesting. So then it, it occurs to me that we're seeing a lot of women who are starting to speak up and they will talk to their partners and say, hey, this isn't fair. I'm unhappy. This isn't working. But the sense I get is that it's falling on deaf ears. Like it's, it, that's not working. Is that what, what you're seeing? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it can fall on deaf ears. And the women that I interviewed for the book, many of them said that. You know, I think it's really hard to illustrate all the mental labor that goes on. And I know when children enter the home, everyone's doing a lot more work. So I think dads feel thrown because they feel like I'm doing so much. And they are doing quite a lot because kids create a lot of work. But the women know that they're doing more and have a hard time getting through. One quote stuck with me from one of the interviews I did. You know, the woman said to me, you know, my husband recognizes we have a problem, but he tells me there's nothing he can do about it. So it would be helpful if I weren't so bothered by it. So women would hear that kind of thing from their husbands, or, you know, there would be a big fight every three months and he would start doing a little bit more and then it would fade until the next three months when there was a fight. So yeah, it does seem as if women have a hard time getting through around this. And 63% of, of employed women report that they do more to manage their children's lives. Only 53% of men say that their wives do more to manage their children's lives. So there's that 10% discrepancy. Uh, it's funny when you look at the bar graphs on who says who does more, only like 2% of either women or men say that fathers do more, but fathers are more likely to report that the workload is equally shared. So this is a problem. Yeah, I mean, look, women are women are really pissed. I have been hearing, I've been getting the best emails, I got to tell you, and tweets from women saying, you know, I finally feel seen and I thought I was crazy and I thought I was just doing something wrong and my husband keeps insisting that I'm just tooting my own horn. I mean, this is like, it's really stimulating a lot of, um, a lot of response. 
do you what kind of response do you see is it largely women do you are you hearing from men what are you seeing I've heard from men, you know, it's funny because I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times called um, What Good Dads Get Away With. That was, you know, the, that's what the Times editors called it, uh, titled it. And so I, I got a lot of feedback from that article, which came out like the week before the book did. And I wasn't surprised to hear from men about how much they do. Like I got a lot of angry emails from men telling me how much yard work they do, which... Uh, <laughs> Try to crack me up. But I interestingly also heard from men saying, this is so true. Everyone's always telling me what a good dad I am, but I know in the back of my mind that I don't do nearly as much as my wife and I'm, I really want to step up. I heard from another woman that her friend's husband, who she described as quote unquote, not woke, read the article and handed it to his wife and said, you know, should we talk about this? So it's been interesting to hear that men have been a little more open to it than I might've imagined when they see it articulated in this way. So it gives me some hope that men reading this book can really kind of be a little introspective and kind of get it a little more than they've been able to get it. You know, I had one guy I was talking to at a party like a year ago and we, we were, we ended up talking about what I was working on and he had a five-year-old daughter and he said to me, you know, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking like, I really do a lot in my daughter's life. And I think we really have an equitable division of labor. He said, but then I realized my daughter started camp yesterday and I have no idea how that happened. Right? Summer camp. Oh, I'm grimacing. People listening, I'm grimacing. I just made the biggest face. Okay, keep going. It was so funny. He had this like kind of aha moment around it. He was a really nice guy. I mean, all these guys are often, you know, really nice guys, certainly. Absolutely. So it was just, it was a great, it was an eye-opening conversation for both of us because it was, you know, he had this moment and I was like, yes, it, it was, um, it, it was funny. It was a good conversation. Oh, I have so many places to take this. I want to start by asking you, and it's going to be interesting to see your perspective on this now that the book is out. When you were writing the book, what did you want the book to do? Like, did you have a goal or an outcome? Like, I want this book to achieve this. Absolutely. I have a goal. I wanted to write the book that would have helped me going into parenthood. And I wanted to write a book that people who were in it could identify with and then use to kind of foment action. So my goal is that millions of people read this and that we see a shift in the percentage of unpaid labor that women do, because it's, it's not without a cost in every way, you know, cost to marital happiness, a cost to women's personal well-being, and an actual monetary cost in terms of women's potential career success and what they're, what they're able to accomplish in terms of their own ambitions. So I have a huge goal for this book, which is that it helps to move the needle. Mm-hmm. Is it, do you, we're only a couple of weeks, I think, into your book came out a couple yeah, weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Do you feel like that's happening? Like, what do you feel like now at this moment in time? It's hard to know. I mean, you know, it's funny. If you're not a celebrity, your book does not sell well initially. So it really, if you're not like Ani DeFranco, DeFranco who I love, has a book on the bestseller list, obviously Michelle Obama, a woman named Stasi who I'm not familiar with. And I don't mean to use the bestseller list as like the only metric of a book's success. But if you look at it, it really you really have to be famous to sell a lot of books. So um, this book will rely on word of mouth to kind of get out there. But I do, like I, the emails I get from women are just hysterical. I got one last night on Instagram from a woman I don't know saying, I'm following my husband around the house reading passages aloud to him. <laughs> 
<laughs> and she was not the first woman I heard that from. But it just cracks me up every time. So, you know, I, I and she said, I'm going to tell everyone I know about this book. So I, I hope, you know, if that if that happens enough, if I do enough podcasts, that a lot of people will read it. Because this is really like, you know, again, women have achieved equality in employment, or I'm sorry, at least entry level employment and education. But this is one area where we're really stuck. And if you know about it, you can really take care to not live this way. Yes. Okay. So, you know, in constructing solutions to big problems, one of the things we have to do first is identify the problems. Yeah, absolutely. Describe them and explain them and seek to understand where why it's happening and put yes. together a lot of theories. And I think one of the things you've done so brilliantly with this book is paint a picture of the problem, right? And say like, you're not imagining it, you know, let me come inside your head in your home and, and like describe so many stories of what's happening. And I'm hearing also, we have a book club for Startup Pregnant where we have 30 people reading this book and everyone's like, oh my God, I feel so heard. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> That's awesome to hear. Right. And, which leads me to more questions, of course, which is where do we go from here and how do we take this information? And for you, like, I don't expect, I think people, they're like, oh, you've written the book. So now you must have all the answers. I don't expect you to have all the answers, but I do want to know, do you have an idea of what equity and partnerships looks like? It's a good question. There are definitions of what it looks like per researchers, and I don't have them in front of me, but they do a really good job of, of talking about it. Because I don't think there's an actual 50-50 everyday goal. I mean, that's just not that's not realistic in terms of how a home works, but there is um, the idea that both partners know what's going on fully, that attention to mutual well-being is kind of equally distributed, that um, acknowledgement of, of the other partner's work is a part of it, and that both the ambitions, the extra how do you say this? Outside of the home ambitions of both partners are equally supported. And that and this, this is a point of discussion. The couples who did this successfully that I interview, interviewed for the book really sat down and explicitly made equality a priority. There's a book called Equally Shared Parenting written by a couple about 10 years ago where they both cut back at work when their kids were born in order to kind of like do this equal thing. And it worked so well for them and it differed so much from what they saw around them. They decided to write this book. And one of the couples that they you know, they had a community of equally shared parenting couples. They call it ESP, Equally Shared Parenting. And one of the couples they interviewed when they were talking to them about their success, the couple said to them, we mostly just wanted to be equals. We didn't care about material success. We didn't care about career success so much. We mostly just wanted to be equals. And I thought, that's crazy that that has to be your primary goal for it to happen. But you know what? It seems like it does have to at least be among your primary goals. The sexism is so baked into our culture. We have so many ideas about mothers being better at this and kind of innately us, like the ones who can do it. And those ideas filter in so much, even if we, even if we kind of know better and are progressive, it doesn't matter. Like there, again, the sexism is so prevalent that this is how it goes. Unless one says we mostly just want to be equals. Yes. Okay. I now have to ask you about the, um, why the maternal instinct, the phrase maternal instinct is a lie. Can you talk about that? 
So instinct has a very specific meaning in biology. It means a set of behaviors that comes in response to a stimulus that does not vary within the species. So for example, when a rat has a baby, I can't remember exactly what she does. She like chews off the umbilical cord, she licks the baby, she eats the placenta. Every rat does exactly the same thing. That, that's an instinct. Human beings don't have instincts anymore. We have a neocortex, which allows us to learn in order to adapt to our environments. So pretty much everything we do as human beings relies upon learning. Instincts are not flexible. They don't allow an, an animal to adapt. So animals whose brains aren't developed as ours rely on instincts. Human beings don't. The term instinct has gotten perverted. So when we use it colloquially, we're not talking about what biologists are talking about. About. And Darwin actually talked about maternal instincts. Um, Darwin was brilliant, but he was also a product of his time, a time when men liked to believe that, oh, this is what women want, this is what they're good at, this is what they were born for. And in fact, Darwin and his contemporaries thought that women hadn't evolved the same intellectual capacities as men, specifically because of their reproductive function. So the idea of maternal instinct kind of now stands in as an excuse for the subjugation of women. Like if we just say, well, my Others have this instinct. And we don't talk about paternal instincts, right? No one ever says, oh, it's your paternal instincts. Like, it's just not part of our culture. So it's really a phrase that's been bastardized to to kind of justify women's subjugation. Mm, We will craft a lot of stories to keep the current structures or power systems in place. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, oftentimes what we talk about as natural or innate is really just an excuse for maintaining the power structure. And it certainly is in this case. Yeah. I was so thrilled to read about this. There's a whole section in the book, people listening all about the maternal instinct and the myth of it and the flaws and just what Darcy was just saying. And I think there's one other episode where we talk to, it's Steph Jala, and we really get into this idea of mother's intuition and this idea of instinct as something that you're like preternaturally born with. Like you've been bestowed with all of these these, uh, gifts and they're naturally who you are and how much that is just patently false. Like we are learning creatures. We learn for a living and we forget that if you give anyone three months of time with a baby and 4,000 diapers, you're going to figure out how to put a diaper on. Right. And then we forget three months later that you're like, oh, I just know how to do diapers better than dad. Yeah. You had 4,000 more chances to try it. Like you'd also be better at riding a bicycle. (laughs) Right. Yes. So there's new research actually about um, what happens when fathers take paternal leave by themselves. So when mom goes back to work and the dad's home, the impact of that it it pays out dividends in terms of how much more labor dads end up doing for exactly the reason you're saying. You know, we assume that mothers are better at this innately and then mothers end up spending more time with babies early on and then there's kind of a snowball effect. Parenting is learned for both women and men and both women and men are hormonally changed by spending time with babies. Men's hormones change during pregnancy when they, when they are in close contact with um, their female partner. And we don't really know how this happens, though there is some evidence of how it happens in other primates that's super interesting. We don't know how it happens in humans, but the same hormones rise in men as in women during pregnancy. Mm. People listening, I am going to link this up in the show notes, but go back and listen to the episode with Amy Henderson because she writes a lot about neuroscience around fatherhood and the changes that happen. But the only way they happen is if fathers actually spend quality time with their kids doing caregiving. 
Right. It's the learning that changes the brain. But, but, the, but men are hormonally primed to love and nurture their children in the same way that women are. I didn't know that. I didn't know the thing about the hormones before I started the research for this book. And then I thought, did I really not know that? Does everyone else know that? How did I miss that? But I, I think kind of, we, you know, we miss that because of the assumptions that we make. Yes. Okay. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like about like what potential of fatherhood is that maybe we're missing out on? Well, the potential of fatherhood is the same as motherhood. In fact, we should just call it parenthood because there doesn't seem to be any difference really biologically. I mean, clearly only women can gestate and breastfeed. But other than that, men are hormonally primed to parent in the same way. I mean, our species wouldn't have survived. Babies need so much care. And mothers, especially, you know, 150,000 years ago at the when emotionally modern humans evolved, dying in childbirth was not uncommon. Babies wouldn't have survived if there wasn't another parent around who was inclined to care for them. And fathers are just as inclined to care. There have been, you know, this, they started doing studies in the 70s of fathers' responsiveness to babies. And one of the first studies looked at, they were with newborns and parents in, in hospitals, you know, right after birth. And they found, like, they took a bunch of physiological measures, blood pressure, skin conductance, heart rate. Um, and they found that the reaction, the physiological responses of fathers to newborns was the same as the physiological responsiveness of mothers to newborns. There was no difference. The one difference they saw was that fathers were more likely to take a step back in their partner's presence than mothers were. And that's all about cultural belief. Yes. I am so glad. I think that you're saying this out loud. I think people listening are going to be you know, like record scratch, pause, rewind. Like, what is she saying? I don't I haven't heard this before and it's so necessary to say it out loud and to really unpack the the scripts that we all have in our head because we've been taught them. Yeah. That they've been ingrained in us. I want to take a look now at your your own partnership if you don't mind sharing some of that story. What has changed in your own relationship and partnership since writing this book? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, we, like a lot of couples, we had a really hard time with this, you know, in the first years of our daughter's lives, you know, and I want to say my, my husband is a totally loving, devoted father. My kids adore him. My nine-year-old started the book and said to me, mom, you're wrong. Dad does a lot. And, you know, I'm so glad that that's her feeling about it. You know, I, I, I was bound to feel different as his partner than his kids feel, but his, you know, his kids don't, don't see things this way, which is great. I'm glad. But we just, we had a hard time around it. I was never very effective at communicating what I needed and he would get defensive. And then he wasn't very good at taking in what I had to say. You know, again, as the kids got older, things got a little bit easier. It's very hard though, once you're the one who's done all the learning to really shift responsibility. You know, some years in, like I, I am the one who knows what's going on and I've learned it over, you know, nine years now. So there's a learning curve that becomes really hard to fight against as your kids get older. I mean, you can. So, but really interestingly, you know, my husband, I kept saying to him while I was writing, you know, you have to read this because if there's anything you want me to change, I'm happy to, but you have to tell me. And he kept saying, no, 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 there's nothing I'm going to want you to change. It's fine. So he didn't ultimately end up reading it until about a month ago. But I have noticed in the past month, since he's read the book, that he's a little more on top of things. I mean, things have gotten better already because we had been talking, but like a new, there's been like a little bit, I've noticed a little bit of a shift in like some of the mental load stuff and in some of his insistence that he do things. So that's been interesting. I also noticed for myself, you know, and this is one of the things that women would say to me and that I write about is 
like women are so, you know, girls are raised to think about the needs of others all the time and boys really are not. And so I would notice myself like automatically going out of my way to save my husband from some inconvenience. So I'm better at catching myself at doing that now and making myself stop because I know it doesn't land us anywhere good. We're both trying more. That's what I would say. It's still not perfect. And it's just, you know, it's hard. Like my daughter has a dance rehearsal today after school for her recital. And there's been a lot of planning between me and the other mom who's, you know, her daughter's in the class too. And we help each other out a lot. She lives in my building. So she and I have been back and forth about this. We've made all the plans for this. You know, I don't even think my husband knows it's happening. And it's that kind of thing that is just so constant. And that's not his fault. And it's not my fault because why should I have to be like, hey, 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 this is happening every day. We, we're still not perfect about communicating about this stuff. And sometimes now it just feels easier because I've gotten so much better at it because I've done it for so much longer to sort of take on more. I'm a lot less angry about it now. I will say that a lot less angry about it. Just having written this book and had the opportunity to do this has made me feel like, okay, and you know, as my husband joked with me, you know, if we, if we wind up being able to buy an apartment because he wrote this book, like, I, you know, great. Like he said, and I don't, I don't, I don't endorse this, but he said, you know, if me being means we can buy an apartment, awesome. Oh my I said, you want it? Please don't. It's you know, not quite is, what I'm saying. These are the, the cultural influences are just like way stronger than we, than either of us could have realized before we went into this. I think that's part of it that was so enlightening for me is also the like the cultural water that we're swimming in is pushing us like a rip current in this one direction. So it's not enough to just be like, oh yeah, we'll have an equal partnership and then just never talk about it or do anything. It's almost like we have to swim against the current in order just to land where, where our eyesight is. Yep. Absolutely. That's a really nice way to put it. This one woman I spoke to who was doing this well was a sociologist and she, she got really interested during her undergraduate years in uh, work-life balance. She got a grant after college and went and studied work-life balance by interviewing women in the U.S. and Europe and men about their plans for when they had kids. She said, I met her because she said, she said something on Twitter about how hard children could be on a woman's career, but it was really because they got stuck with most of the work and their partnerships. And she wrote, but it doesn't have to be that way. So I, I DM'd her. I said, Hey, if it didn't go this way for you, you know, why, why didn't it? And she wrote back and she said, I married a Swede, which I thought was very funny. But then she said, but then she kind of said, ha ha. And she told me some more. And she just said, you know, I knew because of all the work I had done academically, that if we weren't careful, this was going to happen. And from day one, I enlisted my boyfriend, then husband, now father of my child, to being really committed to parody. I wanted to make spreadsheets. He wanted to be more organic. But we, we made plans from the start about how we were going to divide things. I mean, you know, and then people say, oh, well, then they'll roll their eyes. And she said to me, you know, my friends all thought I was being way too intense about it, but they've all got little kids now and they're really struggling in their partnerships and we're the only ones who aren't. And you're right about you have to set, what did you say, swim upstream just to meet your eye level kind of goal? Yep. Everyone who's, everyone who's, who had a good story about this had done just that. Yeah. It feels like you can't just swim, like you see the buoy, you can't just swim straight at it. You actually have to consciously swim at a 45 degree angle, which means you do a tremendous amount of work to counteract the flood that is the culture. Yes, absolutely. That's so interesting. I think about this all the time because in our partnership, the one I have with my husband, when we had kids made a number of different changes. He moved his work schedule from 10 to six to eight to four. We split all the drop-offs and pickups 50-50 until I started working from home. And then I took on more of them because I didn't have a commute. You know, I'm yeah. using air quotes. Yeah. And he did. And so we're yeah. both agreed that we would commute 
an equal amount. But we also like, we just, it goes back and forth like a toggle flipping back and forth on who picks up the kids for sick you know, phone calls. Yeah. And I'll do one, he does the next one. I do one and we're allowed overrides with each other in case of like urgent situations. But yesterday I had a six hour trip to take my kid to the ear doctor because he burst his eardrum twice and he's had to go to the ENT. And I had someone write to me and say, if you can get this into me today, the article by the end of the afternoon, we can get it in by Friday. And I had to not do it. Right. Because it was my turn. But he it gives me the stomach ache to feel that, but he has to take the same effect. And the only reason I did that is because last week he took Tuesday through Thursday off yeah. of work to be home with a sick kid. Yeah. So how is it going for the, for the two of you? I feel like I don't know yet. Like, so my experience is that we have a really great partnership and it is one of the most equal ones I've ever seen. And I feel like I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like I'm going to realize something that I hadn't seen yet. Huh, that's interesting. Does that make any sense? Yeah, because you you have a lot of information about the kind of default parenting role that women often find themselves in, so it's hard to trust that it's going to remain this. But I, I mean, I'm glad you missed your work assignment to do this because then, and I mean, like your husband too will have to miss work assignments to do this. And I like it that it's just, you know, we're each going to miss important things once in a while because we have more going on in our lives than just our jobs. So there's something kind of nice about that. There's research that shows that men are less comfortable being in that position than women are, but it sounds like you've kind of put the structures in place for that to happen anyway. Yeah, there's another piece of it, and this comes from being pretty geeky on the tech side. We have one email address that we put on all forms, and it's oh. parents at our URL. Oh, like for that is such a good idea. And it goes to both of us, so whoever is, gets it first, and there are times when I can just look at it and be like, Alex will get it, and I don't even bother. And then you can use a Google Voice number to have one phone number to dial both of you because the institutionalized sexism is that we'll make daycare providers call the mom first. Yes, always. So we <laughs> have kind of broken through that by saying, well, we're not going to let you. Oh, You're Sarah, call- that is so smart. Yeah. So there's, there are also like geeky things we've done to really force the issue because wow. instead of taking it personally, we say, okay, here's the thing that happens. Daycare providers will call the mom 95% of the time. Yeah. I'm not into that. And it's not my husband's fault. Right. That's true. It's, I was out of town once and I got a call from the school. You know, your daughter's finger hurts. I get these calls from the school. I, I don't know why they call me, call anyone because my daughter's finger hurts. But I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm sure it's fine. Like, I'm sorry, her finger hurts. And they're like, yeah, she said you were out of town. I'm like, (laughs) and you're still calling me instead of her father? Are you kidding me? I mean, please don't call him. He doesn't need to know that her finger hurts any more than I do. But yeah, I know it's just, but that's, that's such a good idea. And I love the email thing too. I mean, my husband and I both have, we each put our emails down, but I know he doesn't read them. Dear, you're a wonderful father. (laughs) Please read the emails. Like I just, I know he doesn't read them. So if we had a shared email, you could kind of see if someone had already read it, right? And you could be a little more on. I I love that. That's such a great fix. Or you could put your, for the parents' contact information, you put the husband's email and the wife's phone or vice versa. Yeah. So that one person has each domain. Yeah. Or maybe if you have two kids, right? You have one one person on one kid, the other on the other. Yeah. I think there are a lot of really, because it's hard to debias people, right? Again, because of because the sexism being so pervasive, it's the water we swim in. So there are certainly people who look at this and say, rather than try to 
kind of deal with the sexism, we can just really delegate in the way that you're talking about doing, like automatize, put systems in place that take care of it. That way no one has to worry about their biases. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, this is a whole separate conversation around affirmative action, but like within just the partnership, it's, if you know that things based on the culture you live in end at the 75% and that's not the ratio you want, then you have to do something that's 75% in the other direction just to get to 50. Yeah. Yeah. Darcy, this is so fascinating. My final questions for you, and we just switched a little there, which was which was also fascinating because I saw your, your therapist come out. Um, <laughs> you started asking me questions. What are you working on next? Where do you oh, go from here? Well, yeah, you know what? I had such a great time writing this book. I, I love doing research and interviewing people. It's just so fun. But I don't have an idea right now. I'm like desperate to start my next book, but I don't know what I want to write yet. So I'm kind of just giving myself a little time to come up with something. I mean, I don't want it to be about my personal life. (laughs) I want it to be something else. I just read the library book by Susan Orlean. Have you read it? No, it's, I just got a copy of it. Oh, you so, did? It's yeah. great. I won't, you know, she writes about this library fire and about the history of libraries. And that's like the kind of project I would just love to dig into. Just something that's totally, where there's like tons of research to be done. And it's not really about you at all, other than that you generally love libraries. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Where my thoughts are, but I don't, I don't know. Right now I'm doing a lot of promoting of this book, which I hope to continue being able to do, but I miss having a project. So I need another one desperately. If you have any ideas, please email me. <laughs> I, I suffer from ideas. So I am happy. Oh. <laughs> oh my goodness. I suffer from a lack of ideas. Oh, well then, I mean, I can just give them away. I mean, my therapist my, it tells me it's part of it's a commitment problem. Like I get too many ideas because I'm afraid to commit oh, to one. So yeah. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the problem is. I think I probably get rid of ideas too quickly because I think they're not good ones. And that might've happened with this too, if people hadn't been really encouraging about it. So I think, I think I have to give my ideas more weight before I get rid of them. Maybe that's it. Thank you. Maybe. Yeah. So where can people find you on the internet? Where can they find your book? They can find my book anywhere that books are sold. So Barnes Noble, Amazon, independent booksellers, anywhere. It's also on Audible. I don't know. It's uh, there's an audiobook. I don't know if it's Audible. So it's everywhere. Oh, my friends saw the book at Target. I was so excited. I'm like, ooh, that's like a whole another level of success having a book on sale at Target. Oh, that's so you exciting. Can get it anywhere. And if you like it and you want to review it on Amazon, that would be awesome because apparently Amazon reviews are very important when people are deciding what books to buy. So and people can find me on Twitter at Darcy underscore Lockman and yeah, the book has a website, but I haven't really been updating it. I don't know. I'm doing radio and stuff. So yeah, that's how people can find me in the book. We will link to all of these things in the show notes. If you are listening to this episode, everyone, and you have lots of feelings because her book is called All the Rage, I imagine you have some feelings, go to startuppregnant.com, leave a comment on the blog post for this episode and tell us what you think. Oh, I can't wait to read those. (laughs) Darcy, thanks for being here. Thank you, Sarah. This was fun. 